Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You know, evolution as a great economy of means, it doesn't do all kinds of crazy things. If it finds a, right, a, a good solution to uh, that give a strong survival advantage, then it, you will find it in different degrees and different forms in many, many species. It doesn't have to reinvent everything all the time. So that is why if we have this very sharp acumen, if we have emotions, if we are social animals, you can be sure that all those elements, including consciousness, will be found to different degrees in other species. Because it didn't come out of the blue. It wasn't given suddenly by some magical means for some mysterious entity. It's just the products of millions and millions of years of evolution. So we'll find to some degree to, in other species. That's quite clear. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Matthew Ricard. Matthew Ricard is a French writer, photographer, translator, and Buddhist monk. Ricard received a PhD in molecular genetics from the Pasteur Institute in 1972 before departing his native France to study Buddhism in the Himalaya, eventually becoming a monk in the Shechen Tenyi Daryiling Monastery in Nepal. Renowned also as a photographer and translator, he is the author of numerous previous books, including Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and Your World, Happiness, a guide to developing life's most important skill, and with his father, the late philosopher Jean-Francois Ravel, the monk and the philosopher, a father and son, discuss the meaning of life. Ricard dedicates all the income from his work to 200 humanitarian projects run in the Himalaya by the organization he founded, Karuna Shechen. Today we will be discussing two of his recent books, 2016's A Plea for the Animals, the Moral, Philosophical, and Evolutionary Imperative to Treat All Beings with Compassion, published by Shambhala. A Plea for the Animals is an argument that compassion towards all beings, including our fellow animals, is a moral obligation and the direction towards which any enlightened society must aspire. And we will also be discussing 2020's Our Animal Neighbors, published by Bala Kids, a Shambhala imprint. 
Our Animal Neighbors is a children's book about the fundamental connection between animals and people and how we can treat all of Earth's creatures with compassion. Welcome, Matthew, and thank you for joining us today. Most welcome. I'm so glad to join you. I, I just wanted to begin by telling you how wonderful I think both of these books are. A Plea for the Animals, to me, is, is a real masterpiece. Uh, it is maybe the, the definitive introductory text on the subject. It's incredible, really, how much of the relevant information you're able to cover in this book. Wow. I'm glad to know. <laughs> Speaking to the listener, if you're an animal rights person or you're considering gifting a book to someone to introduce them to the subject, you, you really cannot do better than this book. And the other book we're going to be discussing, Our Animal Neighbors, is just a beautiful children's book. So thank you. Bravo. These are wonderful books. Uh, Matthew, to begin, I was wondering, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, your, your background, training, and the focus of your work? So I was basically at a happy childhood. I am basically loved nature above all. And uh, I used to be a bird watcher. I used even to put rings on migratory birds. And one of my small birds got uh, caught again in South Africa. I was very proud. I used to do astronomy, classical music. So I had a very rich life. I have a father who's a philosopher. My mother was 90. Seven now is a painter, so I have a lovely sister. So we had a happy childhood. And uh, I remember when I was, I think, 16, I read uh, Silent Spring of Rachel Carson. And that was really an awakening. And that in those days, there was very, very little uh, environment awareness. So it was a fringe people, you know, nature lovers. And uh, we were not... We were really in the fridge of the society. It was not something that everybody's speaking about now, even they don't know what to do very much. So, but it was not. So, so anyway, so then I decided I wanted to be a doctor, but my father thought that research in biology had more future. So for once in my life, I listened to him. So I did um, studies at the university, science faculty, and then I entered Pasteur Institute where I was very lucky to be taken in the lab of uh, François Jacob and Jacques Monod, the two French Nobel Prize who found the RNA messenger and the gene regulation. So again, I was lucky because I quickly found something and I could do my PhD quite fast. But in the meantime, I started traveling to the, to the East. I had seen some documentaries on all the great spiritual teachers from Tibet who had fled the Chinese invasion. And so at the same time, I went back and forth five or six times to Darjeeling in India to see my spiritual teacher, Kangyur Rinpoche. And when I finished my PhD, I felt that, well, it's nice to study cell division as I was doing in bacteria. And instead of doing my postdoc in, uh, in the U.S., as my boss wanted me to, to go, I told him, well, I'm going to do my postdoc in the Himalaya. <laughs> so I left for good not very mindful of how I was going to make a living, living at 27 with uh, hardly anything in my pocket. But somehow life uh, was good. And I spent almost 25 years in the East without coming back. Then to cut a long story short, I had two main teachers and I, I was living on a shoestring. And in 1997, 25 years later, uh, someone got the idea to have a 
should I, I do a dialogue with my father, Jean-François Revel, who was a well-known French philosopher called the monk and the philosopher. So that was either the beginning of a big opportunity or the beginning of my troubles, because from then on, you know, the book was a big success, translated into 23 languages. It was a number one bestseller in France. So it really changed my life from being totally unknown and quiet to from becoming a recognizable figure in France. And then the events you know, followed up, more books, more events. And for 20 years, I ran around a lot. So now I'm trying to slow down again. But this led to many uh, encounters with wonderful scientists, wonderful environmentalists, wonderful psychologists. So in the course of doing that, I wrote other books on happiness, on altruism. And when I wrote the book on altruism, it really my major sort of work in terms of time. I spent five solid years researching for that book. There are 1,600 scientific references. And I had a lot of chapters on animals. So my publisher saw that there was already 800 pages. And she said, if you add on top of that 300 pages on animals, we are going to have like a telephone directory looking book. Right. So why don't you do a separate book? So I did that and it took one more year to complete the plea for the animals. Well, I, it's not the, I, this is not the conversation to discuss it, but I, I, I genuinely would like to talk to you just about how you wrote it because there are so many citations and I don't mean that in a, it's not, it doesn't come across as you're, you're just trying to cite for citation's sake, but you quote from so many diverse and rich sources. It, it's really an amazing achievement, I think, this book. And you, you, you must have put in a great deal of time preparing for it. Um, well, yes, I mean, the book, the altruism book, actually, I did the research on animals almost at the same time. I mean, right. frankly, it was five years, like I almost got an altruism post-traumatic syndrome <laughs> because I was working every possible time waiting for the luggage at the airport, in a taxi, in a car, in Tibet, anywhere I would be working, jotting notes, looking at something. So when it's, you know, I, I really did my very, very best. And then when I thought, you know, my publisher said, okay, let's keep the animal chapters to do another book. I thought, well, that's easy now. The book is almost done. But then, you know, I'm kind of a very conscientious person. So when I started to take those chapters, I said, well, there's something more, there's something this, there's something that. So then I spent another year of very intense research uh, to read everything I could find on this subject and, and to explore what looks more the most interesting in all that. And fortunately, because I have this scientific background, before, because for those 20 years, I met many wonderful people in many fields of, uh, of life and of knowledge, many of the People involved, you know, I know them, like Franz Deval, Jane Goodall, they are sort of, I want friend, I hope I can say that, but I met them on many occasions, I discussed with them, they gave me insight, they suggested some readings. So the fact to be part, not just looking in, in libraries, but to be part of the, you know, knowing those people and being able to ask them the, the, the nutshell of, of, their, of their science, their research, their findings, it really makes something very important to write such a book, yes. Well, I, I think that in a different time or if we lived closer, I actually think that we could be good friends because I, I studied philosophy in college and I have studied the history of science, so I'm very passionate about science. And while I would certainly not call myself a practicing Buddhist, I, I've read a great deal about Buddhism and I, I 
try to cultivate meditative practices. So I think that we are very much on the same page. And I'm passionately, I'm a passionate advocate of defending and protecting animals as well. So wonderful. you found in me a very sympathetic audience. Um, glad about that. <laughs> so you write in the introduction to A Plea for the Animals that, quote, cultural traditions play a major role in our perception of animals, our companions on this planet. Some societies have developed collective patterns of thought that encourage the view that animals exist to serve humans. But the outlook of other traditions has long been that every being, human or non, non-human, must be respected, end quote. This is a hugely important idea. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about the role that culture plays in shaping one's ideas and, and also concealing some of our own biases from us. I think there are two main aspects to that. One is in terms of our long-term Homo sapiens history. You know, when we were hunter-gatherers and after that. The second one, which I think you mostly refer to, is different tradition based on philosophical tradition, religious tradition. So let me just say a few words about the first aspect. You know, at the time of, it's very clear that the time of hunter-gatherers, people knew very well the the habits and they had a wonderful, fantastic knowledge about nature, about the behavior of wild animals, uh, those they were hunting and those they were hunted by, <laughs> those they could fall prey to. So, and then there was absolutely no idea of human beings being superior to uh, wild animals. This is, they, they were just uh, other species. They were, they were just other sentient beings in a way. And their relation was like that. I mean, some were very respectful because they were either frightening or, or just, uh, you know, living in the same habitat. So, and especially if you can yourself become a prey, you know, you don't have this sense of, uh, of, of, of uh, arrogant superiority that we developed now. I mean, I can tell you myself because I, my little hermitage in the Himalayas, there is a, there used to be a tigress with two small cups uh, some years ago. And when I, I, I would hear the tigress at night when I was sitting on my balcony, you know, a few hundred meters away, I tell you, I didn't feel any feeling of superiority right. at all. Anyway, so they knew them very well, but they didn't know them as individuals. So they knew the jaguar, but they don't, didn't know very much this jaguar, and they, they didn't know. So, so they knew their, their habits. Now came the sedentarization. They start to settle about 10, 12,000 years ago. Uh, they start to grow crops and to uh, grow, have cattle to herd animals. So then they live with the animals and they take care of them. So now there's a kind of direct link with the individual animals and they take care of them because they want them to be alive and they're part of the family. It's not like, not like industrial uh, you know, meat industry now where it's completely anonymous and incredibly unimaginably cruel. So that time, so then at some point you have to kill that poor animal. <laughs> so there is a, a moral dilemma or some kind of di- uh, cognitive dissonance to be able to do so. So then it completely changed our perception. And then you have to find some excuse because you don't want to feel bad all the time. So you think either 
you start to say that God gave it to you or they don't feel anything or they have no soul. So all kinds of things that you can, uh, you know, bring the responsibility to some, someone else or something else. So that's one aspect that really make a big change. And also there is a notice that the, the first people who start really having uh, big uh, cattle herds were also in Mesopotamia, those who started slavery. Because if you start to use other sentient beings as instrument, why not doing it with humans that you consider a little bit inferior to you for some reason? Now, I think what you are more alluding to is the different, like say, tradition, philosophical tradition, like say from one side, uh, the, the religion of the book, uh, that mostly said that the animals are there for the consumption of human beings, even though I think we can discuss with theologians and uh, it's not always just as simple as it seems and has been used to do to, to behave in certain way with animals. But it's this kind of idea that they are there for us, for human beings. That's their, one of the reasons to be, so we can use them because they are they're given to us. Now, in the different tradition, like the, in the East, especially in Buddhism, Jainism, uh, to Hinduism, it's quite different. They think that every sentient being, and now we come back to the notion that we start to today that say that animals are sentient beings, full stop. They are not objects. They are not, they are not, there's no, the question of whether there's a soul in human being is much to be debated. But anyway, we are a continuum of in evolution and we are not basically so different. It's a matter of degree, not of nature. So that was much more prevalent from the beginning, say in Buddhism and Jainism, where we say all sentient beings are identical in not wanting to suffer and basically wanting to try to remain alive, to preserve their physical and mental integrity for those who have an inner life and emotions. And we know they have now because it's a continuum. And so the idea that uh, if they are somehow very similar to us in many aspects, so why should we uh, not be concerned by their well-being just as we are concerned by the well-being of our kids? So that's a huge difference. And especially in you know, cultures where this idea of multiple existence and in Buddhism where you say that basically in the endless series of rebirth, every sentient being somehow has been our mother at some point. So that's a very beautiful example. So those mother-like sentient beings, you have absolutely no reason and no right to inflict unnecessary suffering on them. So that makes a completely different attitude. And you can see that in very young children, the way they are raised with their parents. You know, when there's a little caterpillar crossing the road in, in Tibet and Nepal, people will show, the parents will show how to take the caterpillar with a small leaf and put it aside so that people don't step on it. So this respect of other form of life and respect of the, the instinct not to suffer and to avoid things that are harmful to their life is very much in the culture. So that makes a big difference. So you, you made a, a potential distinction between the, t- the period of the transition over to agriculture and livestock keeping and, say, the period of the religions of the book and after, but the first informs the later, doesn't it? So the, uh, I will refer the reader to um, my discussion with Jim Mason about his book, uh, An Unnatural Order. I'm not sure if you know that book, Matthew. 
Uh, no, I one of the books that I read that I found very, very instructive is the James Serpen, where uh-huh. he shows that the the origin of that uh, the different relation to animals uh, in very uh, ancient, you know, sort of uh, human. Yeah, that's that's very much the subject of this Jim Mason book as well. It's about really the transition from. Um, you know, from, uh, I forget what the term he uses, but the term, the transition from gathering kind of crops and, and nuts uh, around you into keeping livestock and dominating the land and the way that that transition. And like you said, the, the ways that we developed to appease our own consciousness from what we began doing to the earth and to the animals, the ways that that then informed Western religions and Western philosophical schools yes 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 and you see christianity had a real always uh, great difficulty to admit a group that tried to advocate for uh, animal rights and so forth because it's like there's a kind of difficulty with the scriptures uh, so it's very brave especially of pope francis uh, to have been quite strong in that and to say especially that the uh, industrial meat industry, the meat industrial industry now is really inhuman in a sense that it it uh, it really degrades something basic about our our compassion and kindness to to inflict such a treatment to other animals. And there was also the Archbishop Lindsay that wrote the Gospel of Animals, who who used to, and also Albert Schweitzer, the Nobel Prize, who from very young age say he was even though he was a pastor. So he could not, he could not accept the way, you know, their, his religion was treating animals. So, but you know, this is historical um, aspects and uh, all kinds of things. But there's clearly a difference, I think, east-west in the way to perceive other sentient beings than humans, and that's also led to a very uh, excess. Even though now modern philosophers, like in France, that they call themselves humanist, it's a very special brand of humanism. Uh, that means that human has something ex- intrinsically completely different from animals. And they are not necessarily religious at all, but it's based on nothing. Because either they should say that because they, t- they believe in God and we are so special, or they should show that with some scientific reason which they cannot because evolution, sense of evolution tells you just the opposite. So they are in a very strange position, but there are many such philosophers especially in France, who, says, who claim that we are fundamentally different. It just shows the importance, especially for Westerners, of, of learning about other cultures and also about of studying our history, learning where the ideas and the worldview that we take for granted came from, because these worldviews aren't necessarily a, an objective view of reality. They're inherited from our ancestors who developed these worldviews because of the historical conditions that they found themselves in. Yeah, and also you see those humanists, what they say, well, when you, they call us animalist, that means everyone is same and there's nothing special about humans. Of course, there's something special about humans. I mean, there's a, I mean, bats don't uh, compose symphonies. They don't paint like, like Monet or, or Rembrandt. Okay, fine. What's the problem? I mean, but we cannot uh, navigate with a sonar in the dark. We cannot fly from from Canada to New Zealand nonstop like some barges do, do just looking at the you know the sun or the polarization of light. So 
everyone has the capacity that they need to survive. And we happen to have a special kind of intelligence. So that's great. And certainly human did a lot on this earth. <laughs> but at the same time, to say that there is some kind of quantum leap that we are so drastically different that we can say just we and us and we are everything and they are nothing, this is untenable from the science perspective and from moral ethical perspective as well. My next question is is very related to what we've already been discussing. So I don't think we need to discuss it in depth, but I, I'd be curious for you to address it directly. So you have a PhD in molecular genetics and it's very clear from your book that your knowledge of genetics and evolutionary history deeply informs your thought and your work. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with the nuances of Darwinian evolution or Mendelian genetics, or the relevance of those ideas to the question of animal rights, could you just quickly talk to us about the continuum of life and the ways in which the story that science tells yeah. is directly relevant to the question of the ethics, human ethics around animals? Well, in fact, it's pretty simple. You know, evolution is very, as a great economy of means. It doesn't do all kinds of crazy things. If it finds a, right, a, a good solution to uh, give a strong survival advantage, then it, you will find it in different degrees and different forms in many, many species. It doesn't have to reinvent everything all the time. So that is why if we have this very sharp acumen, if we have emotions, if we are social animals, you can be sure that all those elements, including consciousness, will be found to different degrees in other species because it didn't come out of the blue it wasn't given suddenly by some magical means for some mysterious entity. It's just the products of millions and millions of years of evolution. So we'll find to some degree to, in other species. That's quite clear. And now on top of that, if you go back to the common ancestor between great ape and human about 5 million years ago or so, then you know, Homo sapiens sapiens, again, didn't come out of the blue with a quantum leap. There was 18 different kinds of hominides. Not only that, but we are actually not the result of a direct sort of progression, but a mosaic, not as the main theory, a mosaic of different kinds of hominides and their genetic pool got mixed up and somehow Homo sapiens became quite smart using tools, be able to throw those tools, do all kinds of things that others could not do, and somehow it became predominant. So there's a complete continuum. You will not find something that, wow, that has nothing to do with what we ever seen before. Now, in terms of consciousness, it's very clear. You know, all the best scientists of the time, especially the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness, they were evolutionists, they were specialists of neuroscience, and they said clearly that we cannot, it's absolutely obvious that animals have consciousness, I mean, the highest evolution animal. Not only that, but consciousness can also develop in not only the way that humans develop consciousness by an increased size of the prefrontal cortex, like pigeons don't have cortex. But pigeons, if you train them, can distinguish between a Picasso and a Monet painting if you give them some rewards. So That's incredible. I mean, that's quite incredible. I mean, there's all kinds of incredible things. You know, uh, crowds. 
the Caledonian crowd can make tools, craft tools, a kind of hook, which it used to get um, you know, insects from be beneath the bars of the trees. It keeps them at night and use them again in the morning. And it can, in the lab setting, invent the use of tools that it doesn't use in nature. So humans invented tools about 30,000 years ago. First, Jane Goodall found that chimpanzee can make tools. But now we know that others <laughs> can make tools like, like birds. So, I mean, basically, it's all a matter of degree. So now if it's a matter of degree and there's no quantum leap, so who are we to say that we can instrumentalize the 8 million other species which are co-citizens in this world just for fulfilling our so-called needs, which are not even real needs, because today we don't need to inflict all those incredible sufferings on animals. There's so many other ways to live and feed ourselves. Now, the last thing is this notion that we have been meat eaters from the very beginning. What well, is completely false? If we look at the, all the evidence from the Homo sapiens, basically 90% of our diet was from vegetables, from, from most, mostly gathering, not hunting. And hunting was also a lot of dead animals. And so it was quite little, very little meat. Only the Neanderthal, uh, men of Neanderthal, uh, used to be a bit meat eater. So all these things say that, you know, uh, there's no reason. And also now from the moral side, if we, there's a kind of completely schizophrenic. If you look at animal experimentation, you say, well, they're not human, so we can do what we want. But still, they are, they are close enough to humans that the result of the test and or looking at different medicine or different poisons or chemicals can be then, with the knowledge we get from that, can be used for humans. So both, they are enough similar to humans that we can use the result, but they are not really similar to humans that we can inflict those treatments on them. So we, we, everywhere we get in those schizophrenic situation that they are both very similar to us, but we pretend they are not. And to give you an idea how this is unconscious and biased, and doesn't correspond to reality. It's a very cute experiment where you try to test the, the, the level of intelligence that people ascribe to, to sheep, sheep and goats. So first you show sheep and goats in a, in a beautiful meadow, and, and then you say, what is their degree of intelligence from 1 to 10 or something like that? Then you show them in a slaughterhouse and how intelligent they are. And there's a big decrease of the intelligence we unconsciously ascribe to the animals in the slaughterhouse. We think they are, they, are don't, they are not very smart, but we agree that they are quite smart when we see them in a beautiful meadow with flowers. So it's all, you know, that we are blocking some kind of thing to do we don't want to see. And that's why we, so that we can continue to inflict them sort of barbarous treatment. So the, the point that you made about our, our ancestors not being predominantly carnivores. And I believe also our, our closest related primate cousins are not carnivores either. Um, but, but that brings me to a wonderful quote from your book that I had never heard before, and I think it's an astonishing quote. It's from Plutarch, uh, who is a Greek writer born in the year 46 of the Common Era. And the quote is, quote, if you declare that you are naturally designed for a carnivorous diet, 
then first kill for yourself what you want to eat. Do it, however, only through your own resources, unaided by a cleaver or cudgel or any kind of axe. Rather, just as wolves and bears and lions themselves slay what they eat, so you are to fell an ox with your fangs or a boar with your jaws or tear a lamb or hare in bits. Fall upon it and eat it still living as other animals do, end quote. Yeah. So this is an amazing, this is an amazing quote. Um, I think in the sense that we assume as a society that eating meat is perfectly natural, but then when we are confronted with the reality of it, the fact of taking a knife or even our own jaws to a living animal, the idea seems absurd. It's unthinkable. Well, you know, I mean, we, we should not go to the other extreme saying that our ancestors were not eating meat, of course, they, they were. But it was a limited amount. Uh, and so, and basically, yes, we are not tigers and we don't uh, live only on that and we are omnivores and, and it was a, a small part of our diet. So, but basically now, uh, but, but so this is a wrong argument because we see, they say, oh, we have been eating meat all the time, so why should not we go? But then at the same time, you say, well, humans are so special because they are smart, they can think of others and all that. So let's use intelligence to say, well, okay, we had this habit. But we can live perfectly well, healthy, without that, without inflicting unnecessary suffering. So why don't we do it? No, it takes about a half a second to stop inflicting unnecessary suffering to other beings. I stop harming them. I stop killing them. I stop living on their flesh and on their death and suffering. So let's use our wonderful human qualities to be, to be um, you know, wholesome, uh, ethical human, be- human beings then <laughs> instead of... Uh, doing things which is not necessary. I mean, all this crap about that we, we cannot survive, we don't have enough the essential amino acids, we don't have enough proteins. This is, this no, no, makes no sense. The meat industry is pounding on those studies that have been done with rats in the 1930s, but it has been clearly shown since then that we, if, we, if we are even a vegan, provided we take B12 and we just eat our food and we don't starve, we have everything we need. And even it's very interesting that I saw from the FAO, you know, the, it's not a particularly specially an organism that is animal protection. They analyzed the content of protein in the most in the hundred most used uh, food in the world, and then it's very interesting that the first meat come in thirteen position. Uh, it's the pork meat with twenty three percent of of proteins, but tofu has um, I think thirty seven percent. Even red beans at 27%, yeast at 40%, and the first fish is like 90%, 19% tuna, eggs is 13%, and milk 7%. So there's no reason that, for health reasons. So anyway, just to cut this story short, we can use our wonderful human faculty to, to move one more step in our ethics. You know, we promulgated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights now, there's the right of the child, the right of the woman. Uh, we abolish slavery, officially tor- torture. So the next step is to extend our ethical uh, you know, decency to other species. In terms of the, the, that point about how we, we try to identify certain specific human traits that, that make us exceptional, that justify our different treatment of animals, there's just one more, I, I promise I won't make this whole call just me reading quotes to you, but 
you present a Milan Kundera argument in your book that I think is very powerful. Uh, So one of the main ways that humans justify our domination of the planet is our alleged intellectual superiority. But Kundera asked, and I'm quoting from your book, but the argument I believe is Kundera's, if by chance extraterrestrials who are more intelligent and powerful than we are were to land on our planet and announce that their God had created human beings for their use, what would we have to answer them? And what if, to pursue this idea further, they found human meat so delicious that they claim they just could not do without it, end quote. <laughs> Let us part ahead of that. <laughs> this, the argument highlights the absurdity of the excuses that we use. We ignore the fact that we're committing suffering and we're killing living creatures and we come up with these arguments. But even the arguments that we come up with, as you've already pointed out, they don't hold up. Um, Science has taught us a great deal in the last 50 or 100 years. And what it's taught us is that all of these things that we think, that we used to think made humans exceptional, made humans different, are nothing of the sort. We share all of them with animals. You see, Kundera's argument is very strong because actually the animals are saying the same, but they don't have language. But so he imagined that uh, people who also have language and we try to argue with them, say, no, no, of course not. You know, I have a life. I know I'm a, I have a life on my own. Well, who are you to tell me that? And they say, well, sorry, you know, God told us that. So you have no choice. So that becomes obviously absurd. So the only difference is obviously any animal that you catch and you want to you know, stab with a knife or whatever, he, it has, he has the same sort of revulsion to suffering and death that we would have if those people come on another planet will come. Simply they, they cannot verbalize it in a way uh, that we can discuss with them. So that's too bad for them. So in a way, yes, actually, you know, if you look one by one at all the arguments that people put forward, for exploiting and instrumentalizing other species. None of them really uh, holds, and none of them has any ethical value. It's all about, in the end, well, anyway, we always have eaten meat. I love it, so just that's it. And that's, uh, you know, I remember a, a dialogue with Peter Singer and someone from the meat industry in Australia, and the guy at the end, you know, he had nothing to say, so he said, well, Anyway, we always have been eating meat. We will continue and we love it. So just leave us alone, basically. So there's no argument. Uh, and so <laughs> what to say? You know, when I tried, uh, I, there was a big conference in France and I started asking like that, who is in favor of morality and of justice? So everyone raised their hand. So I said, now, do you think it's moral and just to inflict unnecessary suffering to a sentient being. Okay, out of 1,000 people, one person raised his hand. I said, oh, great, so tell me. So then he, it happens, it turned out he didn't understand the question. Okay. So then basically no one could claim that it is moral and just to inflict unnecessary suffering to a sentient being. So animals are sentient beings, and today... Okay, let's leave alone the Eskimos, the the few people who actually live their life depends on fishing and hunting. That very, very few, maybe 0.5% of humanity. I don't know exactly the number. Let's leave them alone. No problem. That's not the, they are not the problem. 
everybody else, it is not necessary for our survival. And the world would be much better. In fact, I have a chapter in the book called Everyone is Losing because animals are the first loser. I found a number, stunning number since then. I found an evaluation of the number of Homo sapiens that ever live on Earth. And it turned out not so much because, you know, about 10,000 years ago, we were about 5 million, so no big deal. So altogether, it's probably something around 120 billion. Now, that's the number of animals that we kill for our so-called need every two months, two months after two months after two months, as if nothing happened. So that's mind-blowing. I mean, we can do that without almost asking ourselves if there's any justification for that. And it's not necessary. So animals are the big losers. Now, who else? The climate. Now, we all know the IPCC report said, unless we drastically diminish misconsumption, they have said again and again, we'll not be able to stand up two degree of global warming. This is the second cause of greenhouse gas emission is the whole chain of meat production from deforestation, crops of soya, shipping those a billion tons of grains to the poor nation, to the rich one to make meat, etc., etc. Then also it's not even good for human health. Many, the WHO has made an aggregation of 400 studies so that basically red meats is level two uh, you know, cancer, uh, what do you say, cancer, and then there was a big study done on 100,000 people for 18 years that showed that regular people we meet every day as a 15% uh, increased risk of mortality in those period. So to the extent that even an insurance company in England gave a 30% debate to vegetarian on life insurance. So they make the calculation, they know about it. So anyway, basically... Everyone is losing the planet, human health, animal first. So why continuing? So there was a very enlightening uh, survey was done in Australia. Why actually do you really want to continue to eat meat and treat animal like way? So of course there was no any moral argument or even health argument. First of all is I like meat. That was the big big number. Second is well I don't know what else to cook and it's, uh, it's socially is odd if I don't eat meat when I go to see friend and so forth and so forth. There was basically very secondary reasons, also tradition and so forth. No ethical reason at all. No grounded reason for human health. It was just like a, a habit that you can change. So we're we're killing animals. We're killing the individual animals that we that we eat or use for clothing products or hunt. We are contributing to climate change, which is one of the existential threats to our species. We are harming ourselves because meat is carcinogenic. It blocks the arteries. But you left out species collapse because in clearing land for agriculture, and agriculture, animal agriculture uses a huge amount of land. I think yeah. in the States, and, I, and this, is not, this is not an official number, but I think in the States, it's something like 20 or 30% of the land of the United States is devoted to animal agriculture. So it is an enormous amount of land. And in clearing all of that and taking away wilderness, and we're doing it incidentally in the Amazon rainforest and in other places, we're not only de in with deforestation, we're putting carbon back into the atmosphere and we're preventing carbon from being captured from the atmosphere, but we're also taking away 
the home terrains of animals, and we're contributing to one of the greatest species extinction events in the history of our planet. Well, you know, one thing, for instance, is with the amount of grain that we ship from a developing country to a rich country to make meat, which is a reverse protein factory, because you need 10 kilos of edible vegetable protein to make one kilo of meat. You could feed a billion people in those countries. So it's ridiculous. If you look at uh, those famous pandemics over the last 30 years, let's say, there are two kinds, viral pandemics. Some of them is because of industrial farming, like the avian flu, the, the swine flu, and, uh, so, and others, or the, the mouth to feed to mouth disease, which is not a virus, but a prion, but still it's like, a, so that's a kind of a exploiting animals industrially in, in a way that is completely outrageous and nothing has to do with nature. The other one is uh, just disturbing natural system and infringing on wild species. And that's uh, quite wide. That's AIDS, that's Ebola, that's the SARS, and that's the COVID. So if you look at all those pandemics, this all came from bias and uh, disruptive relation to other species. So then, you know, maybe we should think a little bit about that. And we can also, we, this list can go on for a long time, but we should also add antibiotic resistance because we give, I, I think you do this less in Europe to your, and I congratulate you for that. But in the United States, we are giving enormous amounts of antibiotics to our livestock simply to keep them safe. But what happens if you keep giving antibiotics is that the, the random mutation that is not attacked, that is, that is able to survive that antibiotic flourishes, and that's how resistance yeah. develops. And so, much, in the states, there's much more antibiotics given to animals than to humans in quantity. Yes. So that's just one one more um, harm that uh, that comes from the industry. But so, if I understand this correctly, and and please do correct me if if I do not, but you contrast the Hindu reason for vegetarianism with the Buddhist one, and in Hinduism, if I understand you correctly, a large part of the reason is that meat is perceived to be impure. So it's not so much a question of cruelty as it is that the meat is tainted. Whereas in Buddhism, the emphasis really is on the simple reduction of suffering. So, Well, yes, I mean, there's a little bit more co complex than that. Uh, in the, well, clearly in Jainism and Buddhism, that's the main reason. You don't eat meat because out of compassion, because they are sentient beings and they don't want to suffer, just as you don't want to suffer. Now, in Hinduism, there's both. You find in the Bhagavad Gita that's uh, saying that it's like a barbarian thing to eat meat. There are tribes in Rajasthan who are incredibly mindful of, of especially wild species. So all the deers and all that, they come in the village and never harm them. And they are incredibly uh, mindful. And so there have been certainly this notion that uh, uh, to torture other sentient beings is, 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 is terribly bad. At the same time, there's also this Brahmanistic view that uh, it's an impure, it creates a stain, it's an impure, so you should keep uh, pure from that. And they have all kinds of other things like uh, onions and garlic and things like that. So there's both. But it's not uh, unambiguously the, the, the main message is, uh, it is we don't eat them out of compassion. 
but it is present, of course, in Hinduism as well. Right. Fair enough. Could you could you talk to us just a little bit more about Buddhism? How does compassion fit into it? Compassion towards humans, compassion towards animals. To the I don't you don't have to get too complicated, but Buddhism is very interesting. It 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 is in in some ways a religion, but it is also very much it can be a, a secular ethical philosophy as well, and both of those paths can lead towards the the absolute priority to focus on the reduction of suffering. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, you know, the Dalai Lama often speak of non-violence against human, non-violence against animals, and non-violence against nature, because they are all interlinked. And one of the main teachings of Buddhism is interdependence. So interestingly, interdependence is also a very interesting intellectual framework for, for compassion and altruism. So basically, altruism is the wish that may other sentient beings be happy and find the cause of happiness. Now, of course, many sentient beings suffer. So that unconditional benevolence becomes naturally the wish may they be free from suffering and the cause of suffering. So it's a kind of application of altruistic love when encountering suffering. And empathy is more like the the trigger that makes you, oh, this person is suffering, that animal is suffering. So this kind of the resonance that informs you that other other beings is suffering. So now, how do you go from that to, uh, you know, caring genuinely for all sentient beings? Sentient beings. A sentient being is basically a being that who makes the difference between suffering and being well, which will move away by all possible means to avoid suffering. And then no one wants to suffer voluntarily. I mean, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day and why not my whole life? So we can, of course, intellectualize that. We can explain that in very sophisticated ways, but that, you know, that basic uh, aspiration not to suffer is the same. You know, whether you are a university professor or a goat, you don't want someone st- you know, sticking a knife in your stomach. That's all, full stop. You know, so, so, to re- so once you recognize that in yourself, I don't want to suffer. If I can avoid it, that's all the best. If I can work toward a better life, better well-being, more happiness, I would love that. So then I become concerned with accomplishing that. So then I will avoid action which harm my own happiness or cause my own suffering. Now, interdependence is to realize that even though we, I might be confused, others might be confused about the way to find happiness. They might turn their back to happiness and run toward the cause of suffering, but fundamentally, deep within, they don't want to suffer. So if I just, it's no rocket science to transport my mind into others' mind and say, well, they don't want to suffer. So if I can, if I'm concerned with my own suffering and my wish to escape suffering, why should I not be concerned with others? And if I'm concerned with others, then I should avoid action which harm them. And I should do all I can within my capacity to bring them some good. So it's very simple. It's, and then the inter- interdependence means to recognize that all sentient beings, that basic needs is the same. If we had one you know, the, the Universal Declaration of Sentient Beings, 
The first one will be the right not to suffer unnecessarily. And that will solve so many problems. To to touch on something that we we already we already touched on, but I, I would just like to make one point. Um, the I, I don't know how many people would question that animals suffer, but it's it's kind of an unstated assumption. Even if people wouldn't say it out loud, the fact that people behave the way they do implies to some degree that they either don't believe animals suffer or they're just not focused on it. But animals do suffer. And we know this because evolution tells us this. First of all, as you noted, all of the things that make us human, we've inherited from our ancestors. But pain is very, very simple. Pain evolved to keep individuals alive. It just makes sense. You could, of course, you could debate, do do birds need to... um, music. And it turns out that they do for mating purposes, but they certainly need to be able to feel pain because they need to be, they need to stay alive. They need to be able to reproduce and pass along their genetic line. So the fact that animals are capable of suffering is so beyond debate. It is so transparently obvious. Yeah. But you know, it's not, uh, it's quite recent that it has been extended to other obvious species besides dogs and monkeys and like that. Because, you know, uh, first of all, even for animals at large, you don't have to go very far back with Descartes and others, the animal machine and all these people. If you kick an animal, it's just like if you kick an alarm clock, it makes noise, but basically it doesn't feel anything. So that was not far ago, and it was supposed to be a brilliant mind, was supposed to be an experimenter himself. So you can see. Now, Recently, you know, the, 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 the faculty of, uh, of knowing, of, of, of sensing pain has been pushed very uh, far into the different animal species. Now, it has been shown that shrimps can really uh, react uh, for, as a pain reaction uh, because if you put an acid thing on their antennas, uh, they, they move away. But if you put some anesthetic before and when you put the acid, they don't move. So clearly, they were, in the first case, they will felt something uh, with crabs. And with, you know, we know that a, a lobster suffer for at least a good minute when you put it in boiling water. You know, that's been shown over and again. So fishes, you know, they thought they, were, they feel nothing. Why? Because they don't have facial expression. They, they cannot you know, make terrible faces when they suffer. But they have all the receptors for, for pain. And if you have something, evolution won't give you something that you don't use. And on top of that, they saw that when you start inflicting them harm, those uh, pain uh, sensors and reactors and all the neurotransmitters are activated in a big way. So definitely they feel pain. So more and more and more and more, we go down. And as Jen Goodall was telling me, well, we don't know exactly. Of course, insects don't have a mental life, probably. But clearly, they avoid something that is harmful and they move away. So if they move away, that means there's a kind of... uh, it's not the same continuum, even it's not very sophisticated, elaborated. There's no reflection about it, no self-consciousness. But to move away with something harmful is because you, you determine it is harmful. So this is basically pain. It would make no sense. To, if, if we learned that fish were incapable of feeling pain or birds, it wouldn't make sense because you, they need, you need the displeasure, the discomfort, when you approach something that's harming you, you need to, the discomfort it tells you to move away from it. So it, it simply wouldn't make sense. 
and also the as you noted the fact that we we can give animals similar or the same exact pain medications that we take and we see a change in their behavior yes okay so i i haven't left much time for our animal neighbors your wonderful and compassionate children's book but i i do want to touch on it the book lays out the case for how much we have in common with our fellow species on this planet and why we should treat them with kindness and compassion. I won't ask you why you wrote the book, because it's obvious uh, and obviously important to teach compassion to children. Instead, I'll ask you about your own experiences with teaching and, and learning compassion. I know that it's a, a central tenet of Buddhism that compassion can be cultivated. So could you talk to us about that? Well, I think you know, it's very, very important because many, many children have this instinctive a notion that animals suffer and they don't want to cause suffering and they feel very upset when they find out that the meat is causing the animal to die and so forth. But then the parents say, no, 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 you should eat, it's good for you, it's for your health, and they finally they stiffen that. So the idea, you know, so I didn't really um, had this project in mind, but uh, discussing with the uh, Shambhala publication, I thought it was a wonderful idea, of course, and uh, it's very much part of my preoccupation. And Jane Goodall also says that we should really teach children first. And then afterwards, they are, they are given for life, you know, that they will respect other species. So then uh, Jason Gruhl did a wonderful work to craft, uh, you know, simple words out of a uh, of, of, uh, plea for animal. And then we find a wonderful illustrator. So it, it makes a nice book and it's going to be translated into French very soon. But, um, you know, I had a lot of, lot of love the experience with children. I, I, there was one very funny one in uh, Chile, in Santiago de Chile. I was asked to speak to a school and then uh, about the different subject, including that. So I, the parents were there on the back. <laughs> so first I asked the children, so do you like birds? Or no, no, are birds your friends? They said, yes, you know, 300 kids between like six to 10, you know. And then I said, are fish your friend? Yes. Are cows your friend? Yes. And then so forth. Then I said, do you want to eat your friends? Then silence. Then no. <laughs> uh, you know, Chile is a very big meat-eating country. So the parents yeah. are getting really uh, fidgety because <laughs> I said I was a, a disruptor. But this is very obvious in children, you know. Uh, and I've heard a study in Chicago that uh, in the city, half of when you have the kid, where the meat come from? They say, well, from the supermarket. And then before, well, from the factory. And they, they cannot, they don't make the actual connection. And many kids who discover, they say, I don't want to eat that. And it's just like, uh, you know, Jane Goodall make this uh, example of her nephew. First, he said about meat, you know, these are animals who just were on their legs a few weeks ago. I don't want to eat that. And then he went to an aquarium and saw beautiful fish. I don't want to eat them either. Then he went to another part where they were very ugly fishes. Then he stood for a while and he said, then he said, well, why should I eat those also? Even they are ugly. <laughs> so <laughs> he realized that they were sentient beings. And I remember the quotes from Kafka, the great writer who became vegetarian. And then he was looking at an aquarium and he said, no, I can look at you in peace. I don't eat you anymore. And just to finish, I love this quote from Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw. He said when he was going to die, 
there will be a big line of 10 miles long of animals coming to his uh, cemetery and say, thank you for not eating us. And he had this beautiful sentence, animals are my friends and I don't eat my friends. What about the Buddhist teaching, though, that compassion can be cultivated? I think for a Westerner, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is true in France, but it's, you know, it's no, I don't think anyone in the States would question that you could teach math or science, but I don't think it's kind of common knowledge in the States that compassion is something that can be taught. It's hopefully we assume that we're all just compassionate people, but the idea that you could work, you could work at being more compassionate and make progress and get better at it is not something that we really prioritize. We don't teach that heavily, but that is true if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But that's very, very strange. You know, once I was in a very strange place, which is the Davos World Economic Forum, and I was asked to speak for a few minutes uh, about the emotions. So I said, you know, emotions is something that we can transform because just as we know how to read and write or to ride a bicycle or play chess, or you, we can train uh, to deal with our anger, jealousy, pride, or positive emotion, like loving, kindness, and so forth, they are trainable like any skill. If you spend some time to enhance them, to optimize them, they will be optimized. And if we spend some time eroding those who are toxic, like you know, hatred and so forth, and then at the end, you know, these old are very high-flung executive or intellectuals or so forth, they came to me and they said, well, that's very new, the fact that we can <laughs> change our world. Right, right. So I thought, my... No. So anyway, both contemplative uh, traditions, like all the great major religions, know that we can train our mind. We become we can become a better person by spending time cultivating any skill. Just how can it be that we need time to study, to learn, to have a professional skills, and and why should it be different from basic right. human qualities like attention, loving kindness, and compassion? And also now neuroscience shows you that whatever you train in, and it could be a training to become harder than, uh, you know, killer. And then you lose any sense of, you know, inflicting suffering and you do it mindlessly. That can be trained as well. So any training with time change your brain, change what you are. So both subjectively, we know from contemplative tradition that we can change. And neuroscience tells you that if you train one month, 20 minutes a day, your brain will change already. And the more you do, the more you change. So that's clear. Those are skills. And Richard Davidson said very clearly, happiness is a skill. Compassion is a skill. Altruistic love is a skill. You can go from the baseline to an optimal way. It depends on each and every one. We may have different capacities. And we won't all become Olympic champions, but we can all train and play the piano and so forth. Likewise, we can definitely increase our compassion and loving kindness by cultivating it day after day. And f for listeners who are not too familiar with, with Buddhism or the idea of cultivating their own compassion, where, how would you direct them? What should they search for online? Where should they go to learn more about this? Well, just very simply, you know, everyone in their life had moments of unconditional love for a child, for a dear one, for a companion, for a parent, for a friend, for an animal. Moment where we only think, may this person be happy, 
be spared suffering, you know, nothing but wishing good to that person, right? But, you know, it lasts, what, a minute, something happened, we move. So we don't cultivate that just as we cultivate our skill to play the piano. We don't sit for 15 minutes to enhance that, to nourish that, to come back to it if we are distracted. So it's quite simple. You generate that, say, compassion for someone first who is very dear to you. You just start with the easy object. Then you try to keep that in mind for some time. So you, you familiarize your mind with it. You cultivate it. And if you do so regularly day after day, it becomes your way of being. And uh, both contemplative tradition like Buddhism and others, as well as neuroscience, have shown that something that you do regularly, repeatedly, even short time, but very regularly, will end up changing what you are and will end up enhancing that skill, in that case, compassion, to its optimum baseline, which is dormant, which is latent, which is the minimum sort of you have. So people might have different tendencies. Some people are more naturally compassionate than others. But the margin of change is there for everyone. So even you're already very compassionate, you become super compassionate. It's not like jumping or running the 100 meters sprint because there's a limit. You know, even uh, you know, the fastest sprinter will not run the 100 meters in five seconds. But why can't you double your compassion? I mean, it's a, it's a qualitative thing. It's not a quantity or linked with muscular strength. So you can have infinite compassion, exclude no sentient beings from your loving kindness. So that can be cultivated, of course. Well, thank you so much. We've already taken up a good deal of your time. To wrap up, could I ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be interested in sharing with us? Well, I'm working on try to be more quiet <laughs> and stay, do more practice. And I come back to some translations from Tibetan. Well, I, let's see. You know, I've, there's no point trying to, uh, once the major subject which I care for, like altruism and uh, the animal thing and the happiness and all that, well, there's nothing try to repeat everything. So if some um, clearly... Uh, thing that I feel passionate about will come, I will, I will try. Uh, but for the time being, I try, you know, I'm 75 very soon. So it may be time also to come back to my roots and spend more time in preparing for the big leap. And so let's see what happens. Well, it sounds well-deserved. You've, you've done wonderful work with your writings and also with the, the organizations that you've founded. Yes, we do help nowadays about 300,000 people every year to Karuna Session, in, mostly in Asia, in India, Nepal, Tibet, on health, uh, education, and social work. So we are very, very happy to be able that to be to be an instrument for that to happen. And all the everything that comes from the booth, conference, when I used to do, the 100% goes to that, yes. Wonderful. Matthew, I, I really cannot speak more highly about your two books. Uh, A Plea for the Animals is in my opinion, really one of the best books ever written on the question of animal rights. It is a wonderful introduction to this important and desperately urgent subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. And Our Animal Neighbors is just a perfect, beautiful children's book. So thank you so much for, thank you. for writing both. 
uh, for your time and insights today and for devoting your life to making the world a better place for all living beings. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Mark. It was lovely to be able, thanks to the way you we dialogue together that to bring all those subjects. And um, so thank you very, very much for what you do. And it's really important uh, to be at the service of others in this way. So thank you. Wonderful. I, I wish you the best of luck and I hope that our paths cross again down the road. Thank you. Take care. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Matthew Ricard about his 2016 book, A Plea for the Animals, the moral, philosophical, and evolutionary imperative, Treat All Beings with Compassion, and his 2020 book, Our Animal Neighbors. They are both compassionate and empathetic books and important ones. I hope that you'll consider them for yourself and for the loved ones and children in your life. The theme music for this episode and for all of my episodes is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.